Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome to church. Welcome to the table. Uh, yeah, you know what's interesting? Debbie was saying this is their kickoff night or whatever. It always feels weird in some sense because it's like this matters a lot to the staff of the table. Everyone else is like, it's a Sunday. Okay, we got school. We got a lot of different things going. Um, but we're glad that you're here. We hope that you enjoyed the El Jefe and the Bouncy House. Um, you're welcome. Don't say thank you. Not right away at least. Just, just you're welcome. Um, one of the things that we say before every sermon gets to start is when we get to this space in the service, we want you to know that regardless of whether or not there's any nutritional benefits that you can pick up from whatever I have to say in the next 20 minutes or so, we want you to know. We don't know, Lenny. It's always a crapshoot, you know. Um, who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. If you walk out of here with nothing else, walk out of here with that. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Unless, obviously, Lori, like a Packer fan, you're gonna, you intend to do that. Then, then you're just you're garbage. But we love you nonetheless, okay? Was that too strong? Am I bursting out of the gates here on kickoff Sunday? Yeah, okay, great. Um, I made an art piece the other night. Patty, can you show them? It's a couple of weeks back now. Patty, can you show them? There it is. I made it. Please hold your applause till the end. Felt pretty good about it in the, in the moment, to be honest with you. I felt like uh, through a lot of different paint up there. Haven't really dabbled much in the abstract. I don't really know what it looks like to reach a place of conclusion or satisfaction, but I didn't did that right there. I stepped back from it and I go, you know what? It is good. It is enough. It is fine. Then a child walked into my garage and said, ew. <laughs> I kid you not. This is not like some pastoral hyperbole at play. A child walked into my garage, my land, my property, trespassed, actually, <laughs> on my territory, and said, ew, what did you do up there? To which I informed him, you're trespassing, you belong in jail. He said, I just started kindergarten last week. <laughs> Five minutes after this kid walked in and, and was pushed to the point of nausea after seeing this piece that I had spent time creating, uh, another child walked in and said, wow. That is so cool. That is so pretty. Why am I telling you this right now? For some reason, when I was thinking about the very fact that we are starting our fifth season as the table, our fifth season trying to figure out what it looks like to, to exist as a benevolent expression of the Christian faith here in South Minneapolis, I thought about our five years, and I thought about how there are a collective of moments that go like, ew. <laughs> What is this? And some moments ago, yeah, this is pretty cool. Like what we have is pretty, pretty special. We've seen a lot of things together, to be clear. As I look around the room, there's some of you that have been here with us since the start. We, we've had buildings, we've left buildings, we've um, seen our, our city go through the violence of white supremacy. We've seen our city go through the power of community. We've seen people come, we've seen people go. We've seen Debbie reach out and care for all of you in different ways. You've seen me go into recovery. <laughs> like we've had 10,025 different directions that this church has gone. But if I were to add a description on top of you and how beautiful, I would say we're still here. That's not a small thing. We've talked about this before, but let me touch on it once more. We're still flipping here. After all that's gone down, the good and the bad and the somewhere in between, 
The fact that we exist is not a small thing. We as a church are still here. We have not died, and so we are not done. So what does it look like for us to actually be here? We talk about, Debbie and I were talking about just, um, kick off Sunday, do you give like, you know, the pep talk. Here's our vision of where we're going, you know, it's like the mountain we're trying to climb. And I don't have that in store for you. I have no aces up my sleeve, Anna, so you can rest assured that's not coming your way right now. But I do think we're at this pivotal moment in society, in our story as a people, Christian, American, and otherwise, where we ought to ask if this is how we're going to steward our lives in fidelity to this story from 2,000 years ago, are we stewarding it in a way that is nutritionally benefit for our neighbors, ourselves, and our country? Are we actually embodying and expressing a Christianity that, that warrants you coming here on a Sunday afternoon when you could be walking around Lake Harriet instead? We have to ask that question because more and more the answer is no, not at all, not, at all. not particularly for us. Everyone loves us. But, but in the United States of America, for the first time in 80 years, the, the number of Americans who have a church membership at a particular expression of the Christian faith has dropped below 40%. First time in 80 years. That grows by millions and millions of the year, and don't hear me say that that's a bad thing. There is a lot of toxic churches imposing a lot of toxic beliefs that for the sake of your sanity and health, you ought to run as fast as you can from empty all of the pews, period. I'm not offering like any caveats or qualifications to that statement. If something is not actually putting, is something, if a church is putting something into you that is not a creating a better you, if it's not actually making you more expansive, inclusive, loving, kind, compassionate, slow to anger, all of the things that we, we would define as like characteristics of a healthy human, please don't go to that church. Please leave that church. Please empty those churches. And Americans, by and large, have been doing that for the past few decades. Decades strong now, we have seen a mass exodus inside of the church where people are recognizing that the faith that we were brought up in is not the faith that no longer fits. And also, like, context-wise, let us be clear and say that's not just the church that's been called into question. So much of what we have inherited is now being interrogated in the public sphere. And thank God for Al Gore, who created the Internet, that allows us to have good dialogue around these matters. You know, we're asking new questions that have never been asked before about what does it mean to be a Christian, but also what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a corporation? What does it mean to be a public servant? What does it mean to be a partner in marriage? What does it mean, all, all, 10,000 and 20, what does it mean to live inside of a gendered body in 2022? All these questions are being brought to the light that prior generations had not asked. We are no longer accepting that the way it's always been will be the directive for how things need to be. And so we're making space for all that's inherited to finally be interrogated so we can get some sobriety around these things that we say matter most. And it's high time. Is that the word, Jerome? Is it high tide or is it high time? I think it's tide, maybe. I don't understand it, but I think that's what it is. It's a time. Thanks, Chris. It is high time the church starts joining that crowd. So much of society has made space for this questioning, for the interrogation, asking new questions that prior to had been dismissed. But the church, by and large, has refused to do the same. 
It's black and white. There is an in, there is an out, there is an us versus them. There's a right versus wrong. And all of the grays that surround the property of the church that are influencing the, the being of the church, we have no time for that. I've heard it from multiple meetings with pastors in general. In fact, matter of fact, three weeks ago, Anna, I don't know why, I'm going I'm to pick on you a lot. I hope you're okay with that. We'll talk about it after. Three weeks ago, I sat down with a pastor who had concerns about the table and this is, you know, the story of Minneapolis and our influence in the city. And I asked him about, like, why would your church that proclaims the Jesus who said that he is here for the liberation of all, why would you only insist on the liberation of some? In particular, why do you insist on practicing these homophobic things even if you do it with a smile on your face? And he said, you know, we as a church decided a long time ago, we have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. It is like this basic thing. I'm, saying, I'm trying to get into the complexities of the gray, but you insist on staying in the black and white and say this thing that doesn't actually reflect the question that I'm asking, but you're digging your heels in the sand. And so I asked him, well, which Jesus in particular have you decided to follow? And here's where I want to spend the, the bulk of this time this morning. Go back with me 2,000 years in the land that we know today as Israel and Palestine. In the sticks, in the shadows of empire, in this militarized state where the Jewish people were violently oppressed and financially destroyed, there was a young man named Jesus who rose up and who said, how it is isn't how it always needs to be. The people were overtaxed, they were underprotected, and every day in different towns there were new bodies being lynched at the hands of Roman peace, a title that they never lived up to actually serving the people. There was a triple taxation in play, you had to give to your priest, you had to give to your temple, you had to give to Herod. You didn't have any money, you were losing your family, things were bleak, and in that space, in those shadows, a person named Jesus rose up and said, this is not how it needs to be. Now, to be fair, in this time, every Jewish person that you encountered in that land would have said, Rome sucks, we need a new start, this story isn't going to work forever. But really, there were only three political options at play. You didn't have a lot of choices from which you could choose to resist. You had three different options. You could, one, you could um, collaborate with them. You could become a puppet king like Herod and, and try to get in bed with Caesar and reap whatever benefit. That's the only way you're really going to maintain all the wealth and status you had prior to. Or you could be somebody who says, let's just remove, let's take this moment of Roman oppression and let's go to the woods Let's start a new sect, a new cult, a new, new branch of whatever we're going to go after, like the Pharisees once did, this separationist mentality. Both of those, to many of the people, were unsatisfactory. Like, I get like, what they can do. Maybe they're trying to keep us in a place of survival and sustainability, but they are unsatisfactory. So in came the third option, one that recognized with all the different ways, financially, violently, oppressively, always happening, ways that we are being oppressed, all the different means in which Rome is pushing on us, we could push back. We could have this armed revolution. They punch us, we will punch harder. They strike us, we'll cut them where it counts the most. 
Jesus stood up and said, option three is the one for me. Jesus said, this violent rebellion towards the powers of Rome, that's our only play at hand. We are going to be the ones who see option one and option two and will smile, will be polite, but at the end of the day, we need to actually participate in this violent revolution that sees what Rome is doing and insists that something needs to be done. We will take whatever sticks and stones are needed to break the bones of Rome. We have what we need. Let's go on after what we need to do. And Jesus doesn't just join this movement. Jesus actually becomes the face and the fuel of this movement. Jesus starts to go from town to town with his charisma and persuasive speech, and he says, everybody needs to arm up. Grab those sticks, grab those stones, polish your swords, do what you need to do because the time is coming. We've been pushed long enough. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired and we're not going to take it anymore. We are going to grab our brass knuckles and we will fight back. Oppression is not some abstract theoretical idea. It's actually infringing upon our daily reality. And unless you want to actually be a part of change, if you're satisfied with the way things are, if you like how Rome is treating you, then by all means, stay at home. Join the Pharisees in the woods. Join King Herod and make a little money while you can. But if you want to be about change, you need to fight back. You need to dial up your inner Dietrich Bonhoeffer and plant some bombs. Push back on those who are pushing you. And it works. Jesus is not just the face of the movement. He ends up becoming the fuel. He is this spark in a land that is drenched in gasoline, and they are setting the Roman world on fire. But then comes this moment where they push back on Rome so far that the Romans respond in kind. The week is Passover. It's the climactic story in Jesus' life, and he shows up. He's like this mixed cocktail of Robin Hood and Scarface. I don't know if his gang was merry or not. I don't have the, actual, the details on that. But he brings these guys that he picked up along the way from different towns, and they show up in Passover week. This state-sponsored, the Egypt of their time, holding an exodus party. So 2.7 million people show up in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating the liberation when the seas split wide open and Pharaoh and his soldiers all drowned. They're singing the songs, they're telling the stories, they're getting wild over this event that happened long before them, and they're doing it on the bill of Egypt, Rome. Jesus shows up with his thugs behind him, and they decide now is the time that is ripe for revolution. Let us go ahead and make some moves. These zealots, as they were known by, they have these dagger men called the Sicarii, where they would literally go into the public with daggers up their sleeve, and they would kill anybody and everybody who liked or was in friendship with Rome. If you liked one of Caesar's posts on Truth Social, you better watch your back. Because Jesus and his thugs, they are coming for you. Shows up in Passover week, and there's this massive uprising. It's in the biblical account, it's in historical accounts where Jesus leads this uprising and he leaves all kind of people dead and the streets are filled with blood. And it's at that time, in the midst of this violence, this violent insurrection that takes place in the center of Jerusalem, at the center of the Passover celebration where the Romans come in on Jesus and they say enough is enough. 
They find Jesus with his hands filled with blood, his sword sharpened to the kill, and they're done with it. And so Jesus ends up in this, in this uh, Roman prison cell on, you know, an empty stomach, fatigue. He's been leading this crusade for so long. All the people behind him who are not in the cell with him are saying, like, this was the guy that was supposed to be a Messiah, but instead he's just going to end up as one of our martyrs. He's pacing through all those different thoughts. What did I do to the people who followed me? What do I mean to those who are behind me? What, what now? All he knows is he has been charged with murder and sedition, and he's been sentenced to die. The next day comes around, and he hears this rattling on the other side of the jail cell door. And a soldier cracks it wide open, and he says to him, listen, Jesus, I don't know what gods you've been praying to. I don't know who exactly you have on your side, but somebody has been good to you because you are in luck. You have been made a candidate of Pilate's Passover pardon. Jesus Barabbas, you are being invited up to be put beside another man. We're going to decide, the crowd's really going to decide, which one of you will live? And so Jesus Barabbas, he walks these steps and he follows these soldiers up to the top. And he sees another man, much smaller than him, whose scraggly beard has been torn, body has been lashed, there's blood seeping out of the corners. And he says, Here, pick between me or him. Pilate holds them both up. And this is just good political strategy. He says, you know, in order to appease this crowd that is singing the Passover songs of Exodus and, and liberation and the end of Egypt for all, in order to actually appease and, and try to keep in check the revolutionary fervor of the scene, I'm going to let go one of their people every single year. Every single Passover, when it comes through, I'm going to let somebody walk. And so here is your choice, people of Israel. In the midst of your party, turn the music down for a second, you could have Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas, which means son of a father. Or you could have Jesus, the one that scriptures insist is the son of the father. You could have the one who's been going town to town saying, grab whatever sticks, stones, guns, swords you can find because you need to change things. The only way to change things is to change who's in charge of things. You could have that Jesus. Or you could have this other one who says, those who pick up the sword, they're going to die. You could have the Jesus who guarantees you that you are one step away from victory. Or you could have this other Jesus that insists that you've already won, regardless of what shakes out. You could have the Jesus that insists on getting on the teeter tower, that in order for us to go up, that requires for them to be down. Or you could say there's another version of Jesus that says we're already all up. And if it's not the liberation of all, it's just propaganda from a dark and twisted machine. Two different Jesuses have always been available for the church to decide from. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. For 2,000 years, the church has stood amidst that crowd and said, we want the one that is going to guarantee us the victory. We want to be pragmatic. We want to see a dent in the darkness around of us. We want to see power. We want to change the narrative. 
how things have been is not how things need to be. Give us Jesus Barabbas. Yes, he's just a son of a father. But it's better than nothing. The crowd cheers. The crowd chants. And with that, Jesus of Nazareth is taken away and killed. We're talking this fall about the question, based on Brian McLaren's book, Do I Stay Christian? It's such an interesting question because I think we've all asked it a time or two. In midst of all the cultural debris and propaganda and the representations of what Christianity looks like, asking the question, do I stay Christian, that's one of the healthiest questions you can ask with no prerequisite answer coming from us or yourself. Maybe for some of you, the best way to be faithful to Jesus the Christ instead of Jesus the Barabbas is leaving the church that masquerades the resurrection when really it is representing an insurrection. Maybe the healthiest way for you to be a human in this time and in this moment and pursue the abundant life that Christ in John 10 promised you is to get out of pews as soon as possible. But we are starting a new season here at the table, which means that we are still here. And the reason why we are still here is because we still insist that the Jesus that was not voted upon Yes, no ballots were sent in his direction. Yes, no, people looked at him and said, no, thank you. We'll take Barabbas. We still believe that Jesus, the son of the father, is better than Jesus, the son of a father. We still believe that uh, a powerless love trumps a loveless power. We still believe that service trumps violence, conquest, colonization. We still believe that humility is better than stepping on everybody who might oppose you, let alone ask a question of you. And so for the rest of this fall, how long is fall, Debbie? Is that like four weeks? I don't want to prematurely commit to anything. For some of the fall. Should I say that? Is that fair? For some of the fall. It's an important question that we don't just, there's so many churches that exist for the sake of existing. I don't want to be a part, you don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> We, you know, we've been doing church in August on Wednesday nights, and we've realized how special Sundays are. <laughs> what a waste of time it would be to exist for the sake of existing. If we're going to be a community, let's be a community of Christ and leave the church of Barabbas. Let's be a community that actually seeks to exist and embody as a benevolent expression of the Christian faith, despite what the national scene might unveil. Let's go the narrow road. Let's pick up the cross instead of the sword. Let's be the lambs instead of the lions. Let's be good. Fan Jones, I've told you this story before, but it moves me all the same. 2016, Debbie, you're laughing because Matt recycles some illustrations. <laughs> Get out once in a while, Drewski. Um, but Van Jones, on the night of the 2016 election, after, you know, the long campaigns where Donald Trump, I remember one press conference where I sat in front of my TV and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make Christianity strong again. That's never been our story. It's always been weakness is the way. It's always been we're going to grab for the towel before the sword. Van Jones was on a subway in New York City where this man approached him after the news had been announced that Donald Trump was president and 81% of evangelicals had endorsed him. They said, like, listen, man, you are a man of faith. You are somebody who has convictions. You have values. You have vision. 
what is happening is wrong. And you're not saying enough about it. You're coddling the empire. You're being soft with the enemy. It is a time to dial up your inner Jesus Barabbas and fight. This is a battle of good versus evil. And Jones looks at the man who's screaming these things at him on a subway. And he says, if what you're saying is right, and this is a battle of good versus evil, let's make sure that we stay good. Let's make sure that we don't abandon the values that brought us to this place. Let's make sure that we are consistent with the compassion of Christ. That we stay the course of service over violence. Of solidarity over dominion. Jesus, we are grateful for this space. We're grateful for a new season. The fact that we are still here is ridiculous and we love it. God, we ask, Lord, that you give us the courage to not join the crowd in the chance for Barabbas, God, but actually stand on our own integrity. We have 10,028 different questions of who you are, what you mean, what this whole thing's about. So much mystery, so much ambiguity. But what becomes clear in the haze of the Gospels is that you were here to embody and express a love that comes at a cost. Though you were equal with God, you didn't consider that. You emptied yourself out like a servant. Give us the courage to do the same as we step into this new season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When so much was going on in this country after the election, <clears throat> Matt and I were doing some work with the Global Immersion Project, and I'll always remember Jer Swigert and John Huckins saying that what's important for us as people who follow Jesus is to decide which Jesus are we following. Because the reality is we live in a country right now, and it's a big tent of Christianity, and there's different pockets in that tent. And I think if we're going to follow Jesus, it calls us to be thoughtful and discerning, courageous, and to always lead with love. That's the Jesus we follow. And when we gather here on Sunday nights and we break bread together, that's the Jesus we remember. A Jesus who set his own life aside for us. A Jesus who calls us to do the same. A Jesus that calls us to justice and kindness and humility. The night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. When you drink from this cup, Remember me, and that's what we do. When you come forward, there'll be um, three people up front. There'll be bread, which is gluten-free, and you can take that and dip it into the cup. Or if you prefer, we do have the little cups of juice with the um, wafer on top, and you can take that and bring that back to your seat. But we invite you during the music to come forward to remember. Remember a God who calls us to love one another. Please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, 
art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. Not one more time. Debbie, are you retiring this year? Because we're going to shut this thing down immediately when you re We're going to keep going? Not the time. Okay. Um, I was just over there singing and worshiping with my guy, Don General, over there, who has been a force of encouragement and support in my sobriety. This is what community looks like. You know that, right? I know there's so many ugly images of church and so much of our angst around it is so justified and warranted. But when you think about how messed up <laughs> all of us are in all kinds of spaces, <laughs> to have spaces where we can actually stand in one another's corners and say, I got you, that's not a small thing that I ever wanna belittle. So look around this room, this is church. We're setting out this year following Jesus of Nazareth and forfeiting all allegiances to Jesus Barabbas. Friends, with your eyes closed, hands out, will you just receive these words from the heart of God before you go on to cheer with all your might against those stinking Packers that just won't go away? <laughs> Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love, what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace. We'll see you next Sunday night at 5 p.m.